Welcome to the Nativist Podcast, where we tap into our instinct and natural power to live intuitively. The ultimate goal is to leave the world healthier and more beautiful than we found it. It all starts on the individual level by cultivating our mind-body connection. Whether you're on a healing journey or just want to look and feel your best, I hope by the end you feel a little happier, a little more inspired, and a little more invested in yourself and the world. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Nativist Podcast. This will be a solo podcast. I don't do too many of these, but it's fun to change it up every once in a while. And today's topic is per request, and it's actually something that I have really wanted to tackle for a while now, and it applies to all of us. You will soon see why. And today we are talking about taking accountability for our actions and regulating our emotions. And as you will soon see, there is so much to cover here and it's all good stuff. So let's just dive right in. Okay, so you might have heard it's not what hand we're dealt, it's what we do with it right? We're not responsible for the initial hand we're dealt, but we are responsible for how we play it. It's on us to do something with it. And this right here is a whole other conversation about privilege, about drive, luck, agency versus destiny, etc. But we'll just stay on the surface here for today. It's easier to blame than it is to take accountability and to do the work. You might have found this in your life. And sure, there are legitimate sources of blame and legitimate challenges, trauma, etc. we've experienced that have caused our situation, right? This doesn't discount those. Those should be acknowledged and emotionally, physically, psychologically processed, etc. And also, this is pretty nuanced and not always as simple as just willing your way through something. But at the end of the day, still, to truly heal and move forward, that's up to us. And sometimes and often moving forward comes through seeking, accepting the help and resources we need, at least to give us a solid footing. While seeking and receiving may seem passive and may seem like offloading the responsibility, that's just not so. They're active approaches to healing and resolution. We can be surrounded by the best resources and help in the world But unless we let it in, it's useless, and the letting it in is entirely up to us. Let's tilt this to a slightly different angle. Let's talk about when people do us dirty or create the problem. I just got done with my addiction series, you might have heard, and part of this included the perspectives of wives of addicts. Far and away, the most effective and powerful approach and resolving factor were the wives attending to their side of the street. Did they cause the issue? No. Though this can get nuanced in many cases as there are multiple contributing factors in situations involving addiction. But what whom we're talking about here? No, the wives were victims here, so to speak. Are they justified in getting angry and blaming their spouse? Sure, absolutely. And it's important to feel your feelings and express them as necessary and to not try to good vibe your way out of it, thereby repressing emotions. All emotions serve a purpose and have value, and repressing them only delays and often magnifies and worsens their expression, because they will express. What we resist persists. They'll come out eventually, usually at a greater magnitude and a worse moment. But these wives credit their survival and current mental wellness 
with working on themselves, seeking therapy, turning inward, etc. They reflected on their own issues and how those issues were impacting the current situation and their reactions to the current situation. They controlled what they could control. For one of the wives, this meant she ended up taking her baby and leaving her husband, which took remarkable strength and courage considering how young she was and what little she had. And now she's healthy, happy, and newly married. She took ownership of herself and her situation. Often these tough times are gifts because they reveal what isn't working. And sometimes, forcefully, nudge us into facing and handling that. One of the wives stayed with her husband, and he credits her individual self-work for his sobriety. He told me, personally, his wife's, quote, working on herself, unquote, was the best thing she could have done because, as he said, I noticed and wanted to be better as well, which was a huge factor in why I tried to give up alcohol many times before. And when she was finally healed enough to leave, I became strong enough to quit, end quote. That's powerful. And that's important to note, too. Our actions have ripple effects. We have the power to inspire and uplift others. When we take care of ourselves, that radiates to those around us and affects the world. When we rise, we can take others with us. Not that that should necessarily be our reason why, but it's a beautiful secondary motive. Now let's talk about when someone says or does something that pisses us off, bums us out, triggers us in any way. We often hear, and might even have said, you made me so mad, you hurt my feelings. You made me fill in the blank. In reality, they're the stimuli, and how we react to that stimulus specifically is ultimately up to us. As in any scientific experiment, the stimulus is different from the reaction. Different forces, different entities, and so it is here. Our reaction is and should be separate from what stimulated it. You might have heard the quote by U.S. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. To give more context to this, Eleanor was to give more context to this, Eleanor was responding to reporters' questions regarding an awkward event in 1935. The Secretary of Labor in the Roosevelt administration was invited to speak at the University of California, Berkeley on the charter day of the school. The customary host of the event was unhappy because she felt the chosen speaker should not have been a political figure. She refused to serve as host, and several newspaper commentators deemed her action as a rebuff and an insult. Eleanor was asked at a White House press conference whether the secretary had been snubbed. A snub, defined the first lady, is the effort of a person who feels superior to make someone else feel inferior. To do so, he has to find someone who can be made to feel inferior. Another analogy that comes to mind for me is thinking about it as the stimulus, the word or the action, as the seed, and we as the soil. So whether that soil is fertile for offense, reactivity, etc., or infertile, repellent to offense, is up to us. And there are quite a few contributing factors to our soil's fertility or lack thereof. A reaction is not predetermined and is not automatic. Or shouldn't be automatic. There should be space between the stimulus and the reaction. And within that space, power is transferred from the stimulator to the receptor. In that space, we as a receiver get to determine, however consciously and intentionally, is up to us, our response. 
Here's where it gets tricky. Sometimes that response is hijacked by our subconscious. Our fears and insecurities override our logic, our reasoning, our values, our best intentions. Perhaps our unhealed trauma wounds are triggered and those are powerful, especially if incurred during our formative years in childhood. We largely and often can't control if and when we experience trauma to whatever degree it is. I am in no way victim blaming here, absolutely not. But for us to extricate ourselves from its chains that strive to control our lives, we must first recognize and then own it. And this comes through shadow work, through introspection, through facing ourselves, through digging in and getting honest. This process is typically helped by professionals and trusted loved ones, especially if the trauma is significant. So that's something to keep in mind. And they can illuminate our blind spots, maintain objectivity, and maintain necessary and beneficial objective distance. Even with their help though, we're still responsible for doing the work. It's our lives. As you've likely figured out by now, what happens in our formative years affects us today. One of the best ways to get to know someone is to ask them about their childhood. I personally had a fantastic childhood with wonderful, loving, involved parents. However, like virtually everybody else, I still have my stuff. I still have triggers and hangups I've had to work through. It's not always necessarily a reflection of the efficacy and love of your caregivers. None of us make it through life without some wounds. And sometimes those are just surface scratches, merely getting our brief attention. Sometimes they're bone deep, and if we don't properly treat them, they worsen and become infected, and that infection spreads, affecting what's nearby. For me personally, I would often feel unseen and unheard. As part of this, I also outsourced my validation and was very reactive. Reactivity is a sign of poor self-emotional regulation. If our moods and our actions and our words depend upon people or situations outside of us, we've ceded our power. We've ceded our calm and our happiness. We've ceded our stability. Only when we can practice that pause to grant a space between what happened and how we will handle what happened, will we be empowered. When we respond rather than react, we feel better and do better. Part of this is recognizing the separation of the stimuli, our thoughts and our actual core self. If we maintain this distance, we can ascertain when our fears are trying to hijack, when our insecurities are trying to cloud. Otherwise, we're tossed around by the ever-changing winds at the mercy of situations and people. I can tell you from personal experience what a freeing feeling it is to reclaim your power and maintain that calm in the storm. It feels better for you. It feels better for others. Our actions have ripple effects. We don't live in a vacuum. So you can imagine the compound effect of reactives interacting with other reactives. No wonder we have the division and discord in our world, in relationships and communities and business and politics and friendships and religion. We can be powerful catalysts for change on a micro and macro level simply by learning to regulate our emotions, diffusing situations by remaining grounded and aware. Self-awareness is key and not everyone is fully self-aware. We're all at different parts of our journey, to put it euphemistically. In a recent relationship, I myself saw firsthand from the other side how destructive poor emotional self-regulation can be. Let me tell you about it. A little bit of a backstory. Codependency can manifest in various ways. 
I was codependent in the sense I was a fixer and derived my sense of value and worth from fixing, from accommodating, and from caretaking. This is good to an extent, but not in excess and not to the point of self-abandonment. Neither wins when only one set of needs or wants is being met. In a way, I was using that fixing and self-denying to regulate my emotions, to feel needed, to feel valuable, to feel desirable, to feel in control, to feel indispensable. On the other side of codependency was my also codependent boyfriend. He was codependent in the sense he wholly depended upon externalities to determine his mood, his sense of self-worth and identity. I know why he was the way he was. Family dynamics in the formative years for the win. And I empathize and feel for him. Even so, it was tough to experience for both of us. Frustration abounded on both sides. On my side, I'd feel enormous pressure to accommodate his insatiable need for validation. A simple compliment was not enough. Nope. Each one needed to be multi-sentenced, deep, fresh, nuanced, and heavy-hitting. Every single one. So multiply this by 15 or so a day. It was exhausting. Which is ironic because genuine, heartfelt, customized acknowledgements and compliments are my thing. I love them. But this just felt forced and pressured and required. And don't get me wrong, he gave what he expected. He could be the king of compliments. But it all felt so heavy. For someone who loves swimming in the depths, me, pretty soon I was gasping for air. If we didn't have the exact same opinion, he'd take it as a personal attack. A condemnation of his taste, his character, his judgment. He wouldn't directly communicate this because he needed external harmony for his internal peace. So nothing ever truly got resolved. He'd say one thing and mean another. Not because he was trying to deceive or lie or put one over on me. He was just trying to fulfill his idea of what a perfect boyfriend, a perfect son, a perfect citizen, and a perfect employee would do or say, whether or not that reflected his truth. He needed people to view him a certain way because he needed their approval for his own. Their validation of him translated to his validation of him. He didn't dare to let his true feelings and self show for fear those would be judged, condemned, discounted, dismissed, and found lacking. I think many of us can relate to that, right? Humans have worn masks long before COVID. Therefore, he wasn't truly expressing himself. We could never truly connect because connection requires authenticity. He had an internal script he needed the world and its people to follow for him to maintain peace and happiness. As a fellow world dweller, I'm sure you know by now, the world obeys no script. If we have a script, it laughs and flips the middle finger. Life happens. And people have agency and their own wants, needs, fears, problems, objectives. We're all just muddling around together. Sometimes those factors align and often they clash. C'est la vie. We can't control others, only ourselves. And that right there underscores the importance of learning how to regulate ourselves and not cede this power to others. Though he never communicated the, the content of the script, I'd sense it. And just like I loathe others telling me what to do, this was no different. Not a recipe for romantic bliss. I felt exhausted and resentful for all he required of me, and he felt unfulfilled and unsupported. My resentment would grow, and his frustration would increase. I remember one particular argument where he criticized me for making him feel and react a certain way. I pushed back, cited Eleanor Roosevelt, 
and asserted no one can make us feel anything. Our response is up to us. He clearly let me know he did not agree. And as with anything else, this is nuanced, right? It's not as easy as just emotionally distancing ourselves from anyone or anything with which we interact. There's actual value in being affected by situations and people. It's an integral part of empathy and connection and progress. Feeling inspired by your friend's win or feeling gutted by a community tragedy. tragedy, Feeling uplifted by a stranger's remark. What we're talking about here is the response, not the initial reaction both internally and externally. Knowing our worth doesn't fluctuate, it's constant and it's real, whether or not you or others see it at any given time. It doesn't depend on what you do, what you say, what you believe, what you achieve, and what you look like. No, your worth is beyond all of that. Really, anytime we're triggered, fear is the underlying emotion. Fear of physical or emotional pain. Fear of not having enough to meet our physical emotional needs, prompting a scarcity mindset. Fear of the unknown and how it could affect our current well-being, nurturing xenophobia. Fear of being deemed inadequate, causing shame. So let's think about shame. Shame is what happens when we view ourselves through others' eyes. What if you remove that filter? What if instead you asked yourself and only yourself if you're okay with that action or characteristic or thought? If it, they align with your values or if they contribute to the kind of person you want to be? or if they harm others. If your opinion was the only one that mattered, are you okay with the person you are? With what you've done and how you've done it? With what you do and how you do it? With who you are? When you think of your ideal self, is that conceived by you or others? Are you able to separate others' views and expectations from your own? Deep questions, right? And it's not your job to like me. It's my job to like me, and vice versa. You're not obligated to like me, and I'm not obligated to try to get you to like me, and vice versa. It's not your job to scale my walls to give me love and acceptance. It's my job to open myself up to receive love, all kinds of love, familial, romantic, platonic, and vice versa. This opening to allow love comes from shadow work, self-reflection, self-awareness, self-development, self-acceptance, and self-love. All inside jobs. Do you see the theme here? All inside jobs and all of these drive our ability or inability to emotionally regulate. People can be fickle and mercurial. They can be blinded by their own fears, insecurities, distractions. They have their own stresses and worries. They can get hung up on certain surface characteristics, certain defensive mannerisms, certain societal detractors, certain psychological disruptors in themselves or others. We don't always clearly see others because we often don't clearly see ourselves. Many are simply reacting rather than responding. And then others react to those reactions and so on. Dominoes action. Chaos, right? But we can do our part to mitigate and lessen that chaos by taking responsibility and being accountable for ourselves and our responses. Two concepts that change my life are impermanence and subjectivity. Before, if I got rejected for a team or an opportunity or a blank personally or professionally, I'd accept an internalized defeat. View that ruling as final and binding. Not anymore. Now I accept defeat, quote, unquote, sure, 
but I keep it contained and in its appropriate context. I don't view it as an attack on my worth, identity, or ability. I accept it and I move on, either in further pursuit of that same objective, if that's what I truly want, or another if I choose to redirect. I use the feedback to adjust and improve if necessary. I also recognize it's all subjective. Others' personal or professional opinions of me, no matter how accomplished or experienced or cool they are, humans can do miraculous feats, learn new skills, master existing skills, etc., when they're properly motivated. We all have so much power and potential, independent of others' opinions, whether they recognize it or not. Another's recognition of this and acceptance of us doesn't diminish this. So let's not outsource our acceptance, our validation, and our happiness. And sometimes others will hold us accountable as they should. This can be uncomfortable at best and infuriating at worst, especially when it comes through our unconscious biases, especially regarding racism and sexism, those tough topics. We all have blind spots. We all do. We all have biases. They're a cognitive requirement of being human. But rather than getting triggered, let's filter those accountability callouts through that pause between stimulus and response. Let's examine if and why it resonates with us. Let's examine if and why it angers us. Let's examine if and why it saddens us. Let's analyze it as objectively as we can. We'll never achieve full objectivity, but shooting high helps us us elevate our landing spot. And while we're at it, this is a solid and key practice for every other situation in life. If we find we're triggered by someone or something, it's incumbent upon us to delve in and identify why instead of offloading onto the offender and others to regulate our emotions and to adjust to our script. Sound familiar? If we don't want others to do that to us, why would we expect them to allow us to do it to them? For example, if we see a scantily clad woman feeling herself and posting a selfie and we feel disgust, that has nothing to do with that woman or her actions or and everything to do with our response to it. What's driving our disgust? Is it envy of her confidence and audacity to shatter the shackles of society and its fickle beauty decorum standards? Envious because we ourselves don't dare to do so? Is it insecurity with our own body? Moral indignation, she's dressing immodestly and not respecting our belief system. This doesn't mean we respect, we accept responsibility and blame for everything that happens, not at all. It simply means we can only control ourselves and for our own health, well-being, stability, and happiness, we have to take ownership of ourselves. This is so we can lessen our reactivity and triggers. And this doesn't mean we must always remain stoic and reserved and nice and sweet, no. We're humans, and sometimes strong situations call for strong responses. And you may have heard me speak repeatedly on the importance of boundaries. I'm always talking about it. They're paramount to our individual and collective health, well-being, and success. Imperative, y'all. They allow us to set boundaries without being consumed and leveled by guilt and people-pleasing instincts, thereby saving our precious bandwidth for what truly counts and preventing suffocating resentment when we're maxed out and not acknowledged by those we're pleasing. They allow us to respect when others set boundaries with us because none of us are perfect, remember? Nor omniscient. Boundaries are for our individual and collective good. They allow us to reserve our time and energy for what we need to focus on, thereby helping us to be more compassionate, less depleted, more fulfilled, and more effective. 
And the internet has a wellspring of self-regulation options and guidance, but I didn't want to leave you without a few tips. So here you go. And hopefully they give you at least something to think about, if not incorporate. Okay, so number one, acceptance and curiosity. So first step, accept with everything, everything in life. All of our emotions are messengers, like I said before, conveying valuable information we can use to improve our understanding of ourselves, of the situation, of possible solutions, all of that. And by staying curious, this actually eases the weight of the feelings. It infuses it with wonder, it makes it more enjoyable and motivates us to explore further, thereby hopefully preventing or at least reducing future occurrences. And it also shifts the focus from problem to possibilities, from misery to musing, from suffering to solution. Number two, regulation over repression. Like we said before, what we resist persists. Repression just kicks the ball down the road and facilitates festering. Number three, identify your feelings. As Daniel Goleman, PhD and two-time Pulitzer Prize-nominated author and science journalist advises, Recognizing and naming your emotions arrest the progress of the quote-unquote negative feelings. When you feel yourself getting angry or out of hand, simply saying, I'm getting upset, or whatever your emotion is, this shifts the energy from your emotional center to your verbal cortex. Boom, life hack, that's so cool. Number four, keep a mood journal. This will help with venting, with recognizing triggers and patterns, and with illuminating blind spots. Number five, seek insight from a professional or trusted loved one. Therapy is a yes for everyone, whether you feel you need it or not. And the therapist can listen objectively, provide perspectives to consider, and give guidance on effectively restructuring, reframing, and navigating it all. But if you're not jazzed about that for personal or financial reasons, A trusted individual can also offer valuable feedback on aspects about yourself for the situation and also illuminate blind spots. Number six, allow yourself space, literally and figuratively. This is important. Sometimes situations demand immediate attention and action. And in that case, deep breathing is key. But otherwise, time and space to collect your thoughts and connect to yourself can make all the difference, both in how you feel and how you respond. Number seven, breathe. Breathing is shockingly simple and yet astoundingly effective. Whether you want it to or not, breathing deeply activates your parasympathetic nervous system. This signals your brain to tell the anxious part you're safe and don't need to fight, flee, or freeze. Deep breathing gets more oxygen to the thinking brain so you're able to respond more effectively and feel better doing it. There are various methods, so like box breathing, For example, inhale five seconds, hold five seconds, exhale five seconds, hold five seconds and repeat. Or I really like this, I do this before I fall asleep at night, inhale four seconds, hold seven seconds, exhale eight seconds and repeat, usually two to three times or more. And another rule of thumb is simply exhaling longer than you inhale. And you can do this for as many rounds as any of these take to feel more relaxed. Okay, so we've talked about a lot. We've covered some ground, right? So let's summarize. Basically, it's just up to us to regulate our emotions. It's not on others to make us feel happy or soothed or comforted or calm. It'd be nice, right? But it's not on them. It's not their job. Others don't make us mad or sad or frustrated. That's on us. They supply the stimulus. 
we provide the response. Just like we don't want to be held responsible for how others hold us, right? Or regard us or react to us. Sometimes they're knee-jerk reactions. Sometimes mental health issues or trauma or pattern thinking and behavior or fear or stress or insecurities drive those reactions. Sometimes we can override them. That's why self-awareness is crucial to empower us to respond, not just react. Fragility is when we're owned by the stimulus. Like Viktor Frankl, the Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, philosopher, author, and Holocaust survivor says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. That's good, right? And I will leave you with that. Love you all.